We'll get through this, everybody. Navigating through life these days is difficult. Today on Context, we take a look at how COVID is changing us, our children, and tips on how we can handle it all. New York Times best-selling author Bruce Feiler is here to discuss how life's inevitable transitions can be overcome. Dr. Roxanne Francis is here to talk about divorce during COVID and how to protect the children. Context producer Christine Yu visits a tent city in Toronto to talk with some of the most vulnerable and how they're coping through the time of COVID. It affects me very badly because um, I, I don't want, I, I want to go home, but I, you know, I just don't want to bring it to my mom. Plus, the queue looks at ways our faith informs us. But first, here's Maggie John with author and speaker Bruce Feiler. Well, if 2020 has brought us anything, it's that we're all on the edge of our seats, waiting for the next shoe to drop. But our next guest says life is in these transitions. Bruce Feiler is one of America's most popular voices on the role of spirituality in contemporary life. He's a speaker, presenter of two primetime series, and best-selling author of The Secrets of Happy Families, creator of Council of Dads, Walking the Bible, and his latest book, Life is in the Transitions. Bruce Feiler, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Your new book talks about mastering change at any age. Many of us fear change. Some of us appreciate it. And 2020 is a year of unwanted, unwelcome changes. What are your findings during this time of great angst for many of us? Well, we are in this kind of period that I call a life quake, which is a period, as you said, of massive change that has aftershocks that last for years. And I got interested in these periods, as you know, because I went through a life quake of my own a few years ago. First, I got cancer as a new dad. Then I almost went bankrupt. And my dad, who has Parkinson's, tried to take his own life. And in the wake of that, I kind of was sort of looking for wisdom out there about how to navigate these times. And I couldn't really find the book that was speaking to me about these moments when life comes at us from all ways. And so I set out on this journey, crisscrossing you know, North America, collecting stories of people in you know, all corners um, of this continent, people who have lost limbs, lost homes, changed careers, changed religions, got sober, got out of bad marriages. And then I spent a year kind of combing through these, trying to find patterns that could help all of us in times of change. And so to your question, I would say that the big idea that emerged from this is that the idea of a linear life, mm -hmm. that we're going to have one home, one job, one relationship, one source of happiness from adolescence to assisted living, like that's gone. And it's been replaced by what I call a nonlinear life, which has many more twists and turns, ups and downs, these life quakes, as we've been talking. And these involve going through transitions. And so my book unveils the first new model for how to navigate these times in 40 years. And I just got to say that I worked on this book for half a decade and it arrived at this moment when the entire planet is going through a life transition at the same time. Wow, talk about timing, right? As you, <laughs> exactly. as you alluded to, COVID-19 has kind of been this great leveler. Every one of us yeah. is impacted by it. Tell us about the constant disruptors that you write about in your book. Disruptors are kind of small changes and we're pretty good at navigating those, but one in 10 becomes a life quake. And these last you know, three or four years, it takes most of us to get through the transitions. And if you think about it, you know, three to five in a lifetime, four to five years, that's half of our adult lives we spend 
in transition. That's why this book is called Life is in the Transitions, because if you just look at these as periods to kind of grit and grovel our way through, you're missing this opportunity for growth and renewal. And so basically what I found is that when you first get into these moments, they feel overwhelming, like you're stuck, you're never gonna get through it. But if you look at enough of them, certain patterns become clear. So for example, life transitions involve three phases. There's the long goodbye where you have to say goodbye and kind of mourn the old you. There's this messy middle where you have to shed certain habits and create new ones. And then this new beginning um, in which you know you unveil the new self. And we're, we all tend to be good at one of these phases and bad at one. So my advice is to people figure out, are you good at the goodbye? Are you good at the middle? Start there, build some confidence, and then go to the parts that might be more difficult. That's, that's great advice. In your PBS special, Walking the Bible, you say that the Bible is not an abstraction. It's probably mm. impossible to narrow down. Uh, but what did walking the way of the ancients bring to light most of all for you? I mean, so what I found in many years, going back and forth to the Middle East and writing books and making television, is that you know, that the, the story... I, I see the Bible not as a book, but as a map, but as places that you can go. And the story is, in effect, about the relationship between you know, God and the people of the, and the land. And if you take any of those out, you kind of miss the point of it. And I think there's an interesting, actually, parallel here between my experience walking the Bible and talking about life transitions. Because if you think about the great moments in the biblical story, whether it's Abraham leaving his family's house and going to the promised land, right? The Israelites leaving Egypt and going into the wilderness, the Jerusalemites going by the rivers of Babylon, you know, Jesus into the desert or Paul on the road to Damascus. These are all stories of these journeys into difficult times, but that's when the great breakthroughs occur in the ancient stories, whether it's the scriptural stories or Odysseus or Jason and the Argonauts or Hercules, these are all stories of going through difficult times, but finding growth and strength and renewal. And I think that there's a reason that these are the oldest stories out there, because they still have lessons uh, for us today as we go into this kind of wilderness difficulty, this period of into the woods, if you will. Yeah, and in light of your historical pilgrimage through the Bible and study of the world's three major religions, how do you think humankind today is handling this pandemic? We like to think of our stories as a fairy tale, yeah. right? There, there's a hero and there's a happy ending. But the truth is, what makes it a fairy tale? And the answer is it's the wolf. <laughs> that somewhere along the road, a wolf or an ogre or a dragon um, appears. And we might want to banish the wolf, but you can't banish the wolf because if you banish the wolf, you banish the hero. Mm. And so what have I learned? What's the most valuable lesson from all of these stories is each of us should be the hero of our own story. So in a way, kind of what I'm saying to people out there, if you were lying awake last night worrying about some aspect of your life or got up this morning with a cup of coffee and were staring out the window wondering what's going to happen to you or your family, I was where you are right now. And I went out and met people who were frankly were far worse. So if you come on this journey with me into these woods, into the wilderness, I'm gonna give you things to do tonight, tomorrow, next week, a month after, that will allow you to make whatever transition you're in go a little bit better. You can get through the wolves, you can get through the wilderness, each of us needs to be the hero of our own story. And basically in COVID-19, add a new chapter. Mm -hmm. It says, I went through a difficult time, but I got through it uh, and now I'm ready to move forward for whatever's to come next. 
Thank you for that. The reminder of our resiliency as human beings. Thank you so much, Bruce Feiler, author, speaker, and filmmaker. Thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll get through this, everybody. Ryan Casey Waller's upcoming book is called Depression, Anxiety, and Other Things We Don't Want to Talk About. Ryan is also a priest, licensed psychotherapist, and lawyer. We're blessed to have him in our program today. Thank you so much for joining us, Pastor Ryan. Oh, it's my honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So as someone who has struggled with mental health, how are you coping through this pandemic? Yeah, you know, during this pandemic, first coping by recognizing that for anyone who suffers from depression and anxiety, a situation where we are cut off from other people and our normal outsources and our resources of what we tend to go to to help us, you know, deal with our mental health struggles are taken away. I first cope by recognizing that this is a tough time and it's okay to say that and to accept it. So much of dealing with depression and anxiety is being preventative and proactive with what we do. You know, a lot of times when we wait and get behind depression and anxiety, that's when it's too late and it's, and it's tough. So during a time like this, this is when I lean into all the things that I know that work for me and tend to help me when I feel healthy, even if I'm not necessarily feeling overly anxious or depressed. So for me, what that looks like is paying attention to my biology, my psychology, and my social life. You speak about stigma in the church when it comes to mental health. What have you experienced? What does the church need to learn when it comes to mental health? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, it needs to understand that taking mental health seriously should be right in line with taking just our general health seriously, physical and spiritual. This isn't something that we need to shy away from, which unfortunately the church has long done. We, ha we don't have the best track record on welcoming those who suffer with mental health in and saying, look, you have a place here too, right? We're here for you. We're here to tend to your needs. And I think that's in large part, it's not some sort of animus or some sort of hostility. I think it's been done mostly because the church has been scared and uncertain of what to do. What pastors need to be prepared for is to be open to those conversations when people come forward and understand that they don't have to jump in and fix them, but they need to be able to receive them non-judgmentally and then refer them to the professionals to where they need to go. Thank you for sharing your story and your book with us and much more on Ryan at our website, context.show. stress felt by families juggling everything from remote learning, working from home, and the isolation from extended family and friends will only be heightened in the second wave, say many, like our next guest, psychotherapist Roxanne Francis, who joins us now. Thanks so much for joining us today, Roxanne. Thank you for having me, Maggie. So Roxanne, what are some of the added stressors that you're seeing uh, in your clients that are coming into your office? A lot of the families that I see, uh, they struggle with maintaining boundaries, particularly boundaries between work and home. Um, quite often, you know, they finish their parents finish their workday and they just continue into working with um, 
household tasks and responsibilities. I talk to parents a lot about doing things that create a demarcation between the end of the, the work, their workday and continuing into their family life. So things like maybe having a shower after your last meeting or taking the family out for a walk to walk the dog. But uh, it's important to close off your workday. Close your laptop, finish by 6.30 if you can, so you can continue with family life. We're also seeing some lawyers are seeing an increase in divorce inquiries by 20%. How can couples manage through this pandemic? It's important, again, with the blurring of the boundaries, um, we're con constantly working, uh, particularly couples who are working at home um, separate but together. I would say if you can work in separate spaces, mm -hmm. but it's also important to be intentional about that together time, that couple time. So being creative, maybe even doing like a, a movie night on the couch with some popcorn after the kids go to bed, or even sitting down and talking about um, having a status meeting. How are we doing in the midst of all of this and getting really honest about that. And you say there's something you and your colleagues call the mother load. Explain this to me. Yes, although we are living in the 21st century, a lot of the tasks for taking care of the home still falls on the mother. And so this mother, if she's working, um, if she's an, a woman who's working sort of outside of the home, she's doing her daily job and she is probably doing the online school, um, keeping in touch with the child's teacher. This is just too much for them. And I say reach out, reach out to your um, your sources, your resources, your friends, your connections. Talk to your spouse if you have one and just get honest about all of this and rejig your expectations. All right. Well, psychotherapist Roxanne Francis, thank you for joining us. Lots more great information from Roxanne on our website, context.show. Thanks again. There's a lot of misconception, and the greatest being that, uh, you know, everyone is a drug addict or has a mental health issue. The majority of people just need housing. A clip there from one vacant downtown hotel being turned into a shelter for the homeless. Of course, one of the community's hardest hit by the pandemic are homeless people who struggle to survive. And as we head into winter, there are now deep concerns about the second wave. Context producer Christine Yu speaks now with an outreach worker from Sanctuary Toronto about what the city is doing. Christine also speaks with Derek, a man living in a tent city in Toronto. The city just released their winter plan last, actually just earlier this week, and we're very aware that there's even less beds available um, compared to last year, and we're actually anticipating more people to be out on the streets this year with increased evictions and job insecurities. So we're really concerned that there will be more and more people who will have no options but to live outside in tents and in parks and in little alcoves across the city. And one of the solutions by the city has been to try to create closed hotels and to makeshift shelters. Is this the answer to homelessness? I think the hotel shelters are a start, but a lot of the hotels are very far away from the downtown core. So there's only a handful that are downtown. A lot of the hotel shelters are actually set up as a response to that because shelters were already overcrowded before COVID and people just, there was a huge overflow of people that needed somewhere to go. Moss Park um, is a place um, where the community, we all stick together, you know, and this is what we do, this is where we're at, and this is our place, you know. So I, I try to protect it as much as I can by giving out a lot of stuff and 
this is why I'm here, you know, to help people. Is the situation of homelessness and poverty getting worse? Yeah, I would definitely say it's getting worse. Um, in 2018, the city's estimate of homelessness in the in this area was 8,000, but I think that's actually a low estimate. And since 2018, we're very aware that the numbers have gone up. Um, and I think with COVID and the increasing job insecurities across sectors and in the city, um, a lot of people in the sector do expect homelessness to be a rising concern. This is our home. You can see all of these is where we live. This is our home. It doesn't matter what, it's our home. Playgrounds and schoolyards look very different these days with most kids wearing masks. How is this new world of physical distancing affecting the littlest ones among us? Well, earlier this week, I spoke with Dr. Eileen Kennedy Moore. She is a clinical psychologist and parenting expert who's here to help us venture through this. As a specialist, please tell us what are the long-term psychological effects of having our kids, especially the young ones, growing up in this new norm. So nobody really knows what's going to happen long term, but I'll tell you my hunch as a clinician and as a mom, they're going to be okay. Really? Really? <laughs> yes, really, they're going to be okay. So there's a concept in psychology called social referencing, which means that from about eight months of age, kids look to other people to see how should I react here? And they especially look to their parents. So if we are calm and matter of fact about what we need to do now as a community, our kids will be too. So Dr. Kennedy Moore, a lot of kids just don't want to wear masks. How do parents navigate that world? It's that I don't want to wear masks. <laughs> you yeah. know, none of us want to do this. They are not that comfortable. They're not that bad, but they're not that comfortable. And it would be so much easier if we didn't have to wear them. But this is another time where it's really important to parent, for parents to talk about our values. In the United States, we're hearing a lot about my rights. And I think that's missing the point in a global pandemic. This is a time for service. It's a time for thinking about community. It's a time for thinking about that old-fashioned word, duty. We have a responsibility to not just do what I want, but to care for others. That's what we're here for. And I think we can explain this to our kids. We can say, yes, I get it that you don't want to wear the masks, but it's really important, and here's why. This is what our family stands for. Okay, you, you've published a number of books and you have a full website where you give kids advice on how to make friends. How is it possible, again, with the masks, with these new normals, uh, you know, there might be a bit of anxiety for kids as well. How, how do kids make friends, especially in, the, in this new norm of social distancing, masks, and so forth? That definitely is a challenge. Um, shortly after the pandemic started, my co-author Christine McLaughlin and I convinced our publisher to produce a free ebook for children ages six to 12. And it's called Growing Friendships During the Coronavirus Pandemic, mm -hmm. because that's exactly what we were worried about. So it, it turns out that there are a lot of ways to reach out to kids. I'm not going to tell any family this is what you should do because everybody's circumstances are different and people have to have different degrees of caution. Some people are able to do pods with just one or two other families. 
other people, that's just not on the table for them. So we wrote out a whole bunch of different ways that kids can reach out to their friends, either online or with social distancing. Dr. Kennedy Moore, you, you honed in on something that we're going to talk about next, and that is this. It's the, it's the online um, aspect of learning that our, a lot of our kids are entering into. Uh, how does that impact social skills for the introvert child as well as the extroverted child? Well, the extroverted kids are really suffering because they want the whole party to keep going. But even the introvert kids are because nobody wants this isolation. Introverts and extroverts, it's about where do you get your energy? And it's not about do I want to be a misfit all by myself? No, it's introverts prefer smaller groups and, and more intimate friendships, but they still, we all need people. So this is something that we can't fix for our kids, but what we can do is acknowledge their feelings. We can say things like, you're feeling blank because blank. This is a dippy intervention, but some of us have made a career out of it because it works. What we're doing is we're taking those big messy feelings and we're wrapping them up in words, which makes them more understandable and therefore more manageable. And when we as parents are doing it, we're holding half the weight of those big feelings. So we can't fix the feelings, we're just acknowledging them. And we want to say the word you. Business people are often taught to say, I understand you feel whatever it is. And maybe that works in business. I have my doubts about that, but it definitely doesn't work with kids because it makes the, the focus on I rather than you. And we want to be emphasizing I, I. Uh, we want to be emphasizing you. So you're feeling blank because blank. You're feeling frustrated because you can't get together with the friends the way you used to. You're feeling sad because all of your activities were cancel canceled. You wish we could go back to way the way things were. All of these acknowledging the feelings just helps kids to get through these difficult times. I'm reassured by the fact that you said it's, it's going to be okay. Our right. kids are going yeah. to be okay. Again, joining us from Princeton, New Jersey, psychologist Dr. Eileen Kennedy-Moore. Thank you for your insights today. My pleasure. How are churches coping amid the worst pandemic in 100 years? Coming up on The queue, we explore the questions to open or not to open. Stay with us for The queue. It's that time of the week again, the cue, an opportunity to dive deep into the issue of the week today, coping through this awfully difficult season of COVID-19. We are joined by two pastors who, like many, are challenged to minister to their congregations through a pandemic. So how do you keep hope alive amid a second wave? Pastors Natalie Frisk and Robbie Simons are here to join me. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. So, Robbie, you chose to reopen your church when the province permitted uh, you to do so. What were you sensing from your congregation that influenced that decision? I think, uh, Maggie, for us, it came down um, to our ecclesiology, which, of course, how we view and study the church. 
And uh, so what I love about God's church is that it is the most important institution on the face of the earth. Like it really is. It's good for us to be reminded of that, right? There's no other institution that is used by God to bring people, you know, from death to life. And so with that in mind, it helps you to really think biblically and be really try to be as careful and filled with wisdom as you can during a time that's so unusual and so weird. It's been so hard in so many ways, but we were longing to be together with what we were able and allowed to do because as the church has been designed from the very beginning, it's been a physical gathering. And so that's been a conviction of ours to do it rightly, to do it safely, to do it wisely, but to think of the preaching of the word, the observance of the ordinances, the exaltation of Christ, the fellowship of the saints being together, how the Holy Spirit uses that unique setting. And so we we did take a survey among our people to kind of sense where they were at, how they were doing through the months leading up to when we we're allowed to in June. Um, but overall, it's been it's been super encouraging. It's the first time I get back into the church and actually preaching to people, Maggie, like honestly it brought tears to my eyes. It was overwhelming. Just sense the Holy Spirit encouraging because this is what God has designed again for us to do. Ultimately, tons of grace. Many churches have no ability to gather because the buildings aren't available. We are blessed. We have a larger building. We can do it to a 30 percent capacity. Um, it has been strange. It has not been normal, but it has been good. So we're doing yeah. a couple of services a Sunday, and um, we're taking it week by week, see how the Lord's leading us. Okay. And Natalie, you, on the other hand, you work for a church who has chosen to keep all their churches closed during the pandemic. Explain that process. Yeah, absolutely. Probably quite similarly to the same reason why uh, Robbie kept his church or is keeping things going and the church open. We are keeping our church closed. And it's it's incredible how uh, we can be led to different outcomes with kind of the same heart posture. And, you know, we believe similarly that the church is the body of Christ, you know, active in the world. And so um, because of that, we wanted to act out of, you know, the most loving heart posture that we could find for our church family. So we uh, just similarly took a survey and um, of those surveyed, 50% of people, actually more than 50% of people said they weren't comfortable yet with meeting together in person in that larger um, setting. And so we have not yet kind of reconvened. And, and similarly within that loving heart posture, we also have said, you know, what does public health guidelines say? Because, you know, we, we want to make sure that um, we are acting in best interest of people's health and safety as well. And knowing that the way in which we have gathered in the past isn't necessarily as accessible to us now, um, we often many of our church locations meet in movie theaters and it's just become very um, near impossible right now to meet in a in a wise way. I have a couple more questions I want to get to you so um, we're, we're gonna plow through them a little bit quicker but talk to me about the spiritual needs that both of you are sensing especially during this time of isolation. How are you able to minister to people who feel so isolated today? Robbie? Second Timothy 1 7 for God gave us a spirit not a fear but of power and love and self-control. I think the, the great burden I have for the church right now is to make sure we don't let a physical virus become a spiritual virus of fear and apathy. I personally believe fear is running the day. Um, as a person belonging to God in Jesus Christ, we have to make sure, again, the verse I just quoted, that the Lord's given us his love and self-control and his power. So really burdened to help people see that. And like the safe this place, Maggie, I, I feel right now in the midst of all that's going on, the safest place I feel is an open Bible running towards Jesus as fast as possible, because he's the only one I can ultimately trust. And so people, again, um, 
aware of the um, marital tensions on the rise, suicide rates, mental health issues, drug addictions. These are all very, very serious concerns that have been ramped up in isolation. So as the church getting together, community, being present, accountability, all these, I'm personally very burdened. It's hard to, it's hard to care for the sheep and you can't see them. Thank you, Pastors Natalie Frisk of the Brantford Meeting House and Robbie Simons of Hope Bible Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for joining our conversation today. Please go to our Facebook page and our website, context.show, and let us know how you are coping through COVID. For all of us here at Context, I'm Maggie John. See you next week. Bye.